Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. The AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give us a call at 855-616-1620. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show. So very glad to have you with us. Let's get right to it. If you follow me on Twitter... It's at Jeff Wagner 620. Have a new posting up. Now, this is, of course, it is the the silly season. It is the stupid season. And if you listen to the radio for political ads or you watch TV, you just got to kind of shake your head about things. There are so many different ads that are out there and so many different claims that are out there. One of the truly ridiculous ads, I saw this yesterday. You see, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on in the show. Given the fact that the economy is in the toilet and given the fact that crime is running rampant, the, the issue that Democrats are hanging their heads on are, are abortion. It's like, okay, well, you know, and they are hoping that concerns about being able to abort babies will override people's concerns about the where the economy is and things like that. And time will tell as we get closer to the election. So it's this playbook is if you're running against a Republican, you have to run abortion ads, anti-abortion ads, for example. Now, Ron Johnson, who is running for the U for re-election to the U.S. Senate and has nothing at all to do with whether or not the state of Wisconsin should permit abortion and under what circumstances it should. And Johnson has also, I think, been very what I would describe as moderate on the whole question of abortion. Johnson has said, hey, I'd like to have a referendum similar to what Tony Evers said yesterday. And Johnson has also said that regardless of his opinions on when life begins, he thinks that the uh, appropriate resolution of this situation should be um, elective abortions allowed within a certain period of time, whether it's 14 weeks, 15 weeks, 16 weeks, which, by the way, is where I stand and which I believe is the mainstream position. I understand that there are some people um, in the pro-life community who, who don't believe that there should be any abortions, period. And then there are people like uh, Russ Feingold and Stacey Abrams who believe that there should be absolutely no restrictions on abortion at all, including that the the monstrous thing that is to me partial birth abortion. So th- there there is a middle ground on this. And, and actually, Ron Johnson's occupied this. So I was stunned the other day when I'm watching television and I see that there's this anti-abortion ad that's being run against Ron Johnson, who is... <laughs> As far as I have, have can tell, whatever his personal feelings with regard to the abortion issue, he, he is not one of those people who maintains that, you know, we, we shouldn't try to work out some sort of legislative solution, which is where I believe we ultimately have to be on the issue. But, of course, you know, who cares about truth? Then there is, and I, I have, if, again, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 Then there is, I, I knew in the Barnes-Johnson race we would get to this point. I just wasn't how soon, sure how soon we would get to this point. Um, you knew at some point in time supporters of Mandela Barnes were going to play the, the race card, that if you oppose Mandela Barnes or you want to you know, look at the various issues that he's taken positions on, well, you, you, you knew that it, it would be played as, okay, that there has to be this sort of racist thing that, that's there. And, and that's now starting to come out. There's a story in the Journal Sentinel, supporters of Mandela Barnes accuse Republicans of airing racist ads. The racist ads are 
um, either mailings where the allegation is because of the, the shading of the pictures, it makes Mandela Barnes look slightly darker skinned than he is, or that you, you put out, you know, something saying dangerous Democrat and that there's a picture of Mandela Barnes together with members of the squad. But because he is black, that has to inherently be racist. Well, so I, I sent this tweet out, which is let me translate this after months and months of launching every vicious attack imaginable against Ron Johnson. And that's they're putting billboards up saying, you know, he's guilty of treason. You know, running ad after ad after ad saying he did nothing but try to enrich himself. He's he's essentially used his position in the Senate to make himself rich and to mess over the middle class. After ad after ad after ad accusing him of everything, being everything except a child of God. Um, now, the, the what's happening is the Barnes campaign, I think, is stunned that they find it's, it finds itself still trailing in, in the polls, because that's what most of the polls are showing, a race that is either too close to call or with Johnson in the lead. And I, I think what you're seeing now with this, we're going to play the race card, and the fact that they're choosing to play it as early as they are tells me that they are desperate to move the focus away from the far-left positions that Barnes has taken on most issues. And so you're starting to see that out there. Again, I, I mean, I, I've, been, I've been harping on this for weeks and weeks and weeks, but this is the type of thing that, like, the local newspaper and some people in the media want to focus on, as opposed to trying to pin Barnes down on, on these issues. This group that he is closely affiliated with, this Working Families uh, Party, they, they support, like, nationalizing the oil and, and gas industry. All right, Bar- this, this group su- supports canceling all student debt, guaranteeing income support for parents taking care of kids. In other words, a, a pure state-sponsored welfare system. But, of course, nobody in the media wants to push Mandela Barnes on asking where he is on these different types of issues. And even if you do find somebody that's got the guts to ask him those questions, the campaign won't answer him. It's one of these stealth campaigns, and now you're seeing the race card end up getting played. And, and if you're wondering why that's happening now, it's because— the Barnes campaign is struggling, not because of his race, but they're struggling because he's way, 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 way out there to the left. And this is an effort to try to, again, let's try to move the focus away. So if you want to link to the story in my comments, again, you can follow me at Jeff Wagner 620. When we come back, though, I want to tell you about the story that is now turned into a political attack ad that is generating a huge response and I think is going to backfire. I'll explain. We'll discuss. We're almost there. WTMJ is packing its bags and heading downtown. Wisconsin's radio station is moving to the avenue in the heart of downtown Milwaukee. The avenue is vibrant, exciting, plus you'll be able to come by and see us. Come see our entire team this fall. WTMJ's move to the avenue is sponsored by Coakley Brothers and Brothers Interior, the official moving and furniture provider of GKB Milwaukee. Yeah, uh, the the time is ticking down. Steve Scafidi and I were just talking about um, for WTMJ... The on-air people. Now, everybody else has gone from the building. It's really kind of spooky to walk through this, this building because it's it's pretty much empty. Um, I think I have 
an orientation day on Monday where they, they'll show us the, the studios and which of the various buttons I'm allowed to push. And then our first broadcast day is scheduled to be next Tuesday. So, you know, two or three shows left. And then our, our sister station, WKTI, the ESPN affiliate, they're going to be here for one more week and then they're going to be moving down the following week. So the idea is by the end of this month, which is coming quickly, all operations will be out of Radio City and downtown at the Avenue. Number of people are, are texting in. Um, if you are a regular WTMJ listener, and I understand that there's some people who who just tune in for the the Wagner Show, or just tune in to hear the morning news, or or whatever. And there's some of you who just turn on the radio at six o'clock in the morning and keep it on until you go to bed at eleven thirty at night. And to which we say that that's great. Um, I, I know that uh, last night uh, Scott Warris, who started out. Gosh, about 15 years ago, he was a producer, and then uh, he, he produced Charlie Sykes' show, and uh, then he was our executive producer. Then he, he stopped doing that on a full-time basis a couple years ago, and he's been filling in on our WTMJ Nights broadcast, and occasionally you know, during the day. He's really uh, – Scott's a great – great guy and a sort of a Swiss army knife when it comes to being able to do different radio shows. I know on occasion he's he's done my show when I've been gone. Anyway, Scott announced that he was he was leaving. His last show was going to be Monday night, which would be the last live radio show from our WTMJ facility. And um, everybody's asking, where is he going? And I, I just, I, I don't know. I haven't talked to him personally about it. I think he, um, it was a part-time gig for Scott. And I think he just figured that this was a good opportunity to kind of sort of move on after you know a, a few years of doing the talk show and more and more years after being a radio producer but he will be missed but for people who are texting in saying what's he going to do where is he going I, I don't know that he has anything different lined up like I say this was just a it was just a part-time gig for him and I think he's decided to move on but it will um, we'll miss him and I think maybe leaving Leaving right as you leave Radio City, I think there's kind of a cool element to that if you're ready to go. All right. I mentioned this the other day, and I've gotten just a huge response to this. And I, it's worth revisiting because I, I understand that in the category of, of political ads, everything's fair. And, and people will say – in an effort to get elected, they'll, they'll say pretty much anything you need to say. But even at that, there, there have to be limits, or, or should there be limits? So let, let me explain how some of these attack ads start. What will happen typically is you will have the campaign of the, the, ca- the candidate, and they'll be doing like opposition research, and they'll find some some dirt that they want to sm- spread and smear. And rather than doing it themselves, what they'll try to do is find a, a useful ally in the media, and they'll feed that that whether it's a TV station or a newspaper reporter or whatever. They'll feed them that information. And then they'll try to convince that TV station or that newspaper reporter to run the story. And then two days later, they will take the story that they fed the newspaper or the TV reporter, and then they will run it as an attack ad. But they'll cite the, the, the newspaper story or they'll cite the TV story when it actually really came from them. That is the way it typically works. Now, I don't know that that is how it worked here, but the fact that I haven't seen this reported in too many outlets except CBS 58 tells me, if, if I had to guess, my guess would be that this was not a story that originated with CBS 58. It was a story that was originally originated on the outside. Now, I could be wrong, but um, given the fact that there's now TV ads, hostile attack ads running based on that, I, I 
I'm willing to bet that that's what happened. But again, I could be wrong. Here's the deal. Tim Michaels is running for governor against Tony Evers. It is a very, very close race that is going to come down to turnout. Tim Michaels is an incredibly successful businessman. His parents started the Michaels Construction Company based out of Brownsville in Fond du Lac County. And Tim and his brothers turned this into essentially a worldwide company, over 8,000 employees currently. It is, and I I will, in, in the interest of full disclosure, my wife, her niece and nephew work for, they have pretty good jobs with the Michaels Company, and I know a number of other people who work with the Michaels Company over the years. I think if you talk to any employee at the Michaels Company, or 99% of the employees, they will tell you it is a really good company to work for. They will tell you that they are well-treated. They will tell you that they are well-compensated. They will tell you, I mean, look, everybody's got beefs with their workplace and stuff, but I think the vast majority of employees would tell you that if you want to work in, in this particular industry, it's a good place to work. It's a good company. Um, the, the family has done very, very well building that company, but they understand you can't build a good company unless you have good employees, and they have treated their employees extremely well. And I'm willing to bet that 98%, 99% of employees that work have worked for or currently work with the, uh, the Michaels Corporation will tell you it's a really good place to work. And I've heard from a number of you who feel exactly that way, who were kind of outraged at this latest smear campaign. And I, I sent out a tweet about this with like a link to the story. Okay, so the Michaels Corporation, 8,000 employees. Now, th- those change, of course, over time. People move to different jobs. It's spans, again, all across the company, the country. I think they actually have international work as well. So the heavy breathing story, which is now the subject of an attack ad, was that over the last 22 years, 22-year period, there have been five lawsuits that were filed um, alleging against Michaels Corporation, alleging that there were in three cases, sexual harassment, and two cases, racial discrimination. That, that's five over 22 years involving a handful of employees. All but one of the lawsuits were outs- occur- occurred in job sites outside of Wisconsin. And um, again, three of the, the lawsuits, one in 1998, one and two 10 years ago in 2012, involve female employees who were on job sites. It's a construction company and alleged that some of the coworkers engaged in sexual harassment by making improper remarks or things like that. All those lawsuits have, have been have been settled. Now, we don't know how they were settled. We don't know if there's admissions of liability, but they, they, they were settled. So they've gone. There's also two cases of alleged racial discrimination in 22 years. So you've got a company that employs 8,000 people that by all accounts is a really, really good place to work if you are in that industry. And you have a, a handful of complaints. We're, we're talking, you know, five lawsuits, thousands and thousands of employees, business scattered all across the country, five lawsuits in the space of 22 years. And again, we, we don't know the, the, the merits of the lawsuits necessarily. We know that they've all been settled. And, and even, 
even if you assume for the sake of argument that there were validity behind the complaints, you're still talking about five lawsuits. Okay, so it's not like this is something. There are some companies where you get five lawsuits in a month, not five lawsuits over 22 years. So anyhow, this is now the latest subject of an attack ad against Tim Michaels in his close race for for governor uh, against Tony Evers. And the implication is that there's something evil or awful about the Michaels Corporation or awful about Tim Michaels because, you know, this company has had a small, and it really is, statistically, a small number of lawsuits, which may or may not have merit, but which were all resolved over a 22-year period of time. Now, I'm hearing from people who work at the Michaels Corporation who are absolutely disgusted by this particular attack on Michaels, because they're saying, look, this this isn't what this company, (laughs) this is a great place to work. And is it possible with Thousands and thousands and thousands of employees scattered out over, you know, over the years and over the country. Is it possible that you might have had a couple guys on a job site that, you know, behaved in an inappropriate fashion? Yeah, it's entirely possible. But to try to portray the Michaels Corporation as anything other than a wonderful place to work in an attempt to smear Tim Michaels is beneath contempt. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It's almost like you, you just absolutely cannot win. You have a successful businessman. You have a great Wisconsin company. And in an effort to try to... Keep Tony Evers, a guy who's never been in the private sector in his life, a guy who's never created a job at all, in an effort to try to keep him in office, it's we've got to smear this company. 855-616-1620. Will it work? We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. Your reaction to the latest attack ad. And again, I'm hearing from a number of people at the Michaels Corporation who are just appalled that, you know, we would have the other side that would stoop so low as to attack what is a great Wisconsin corporation based on, I don't know, a desire to paint Tim Michaels as this evil guy. We're going to continue the conversation in just a moment. 855-616-1620. No, look, I'm getting some text. I understand. If, if, if you hate Republicans and you hate Tim Michaels, then this is fodder. Oh, it's, it, this is this terrible company. Don't you understand that they've had five lawsuits filed in 22 years against them? And this means it must be an awful place. And, and by the way, we don't even know the, the merit of these various lawsuits. Anybody, that's my professor, my late great Jim Giardi used to tell me in law school, anybody can sue anybody. And the, these lawsuits were all, all settled. And I take no position on the validity of them other than the fact that I will tell you Having, I mean, my late wife was an employment lawyer for 30 years, that there are a lot of times, it's real, real easy to make claims, and a lot of times, okay, you, you have to, just because somebody makes a claim or has a bad experience doesn't mean that it's necessarily a bad company. Sometimes, well, the people that making the claims, they, the claims end up not having merit, and they're just resolved to make them go away. Other times, maybe there is a bad supervisor or something. But 8,000 employees, 22 years, five Five complaints. The most recent sexual harassment claim lawsuit was 10 years ago. And this is, oh, this is this terrible company. Um, Jeff, lies, damn lies, and statistics. Five cases, international company, 8,000-plus employees, 22 years, amounts to millions of workplace interactions. Five is as significant to the attention of voters as a freckle to a physician. 
I'm just, you know, saying this. Jeff, perhaps the GOP should look at the sexual harassment and racial discrimination lawsuits or complaints brought in the Wisconsin school system when Evers was superintendent and make those numbers public. Bet you they're much higher than five cases in 22 years. I'll bet you're right. All right. I think that they should also be then looking and researching, right, how many harassment claims have been, sexual harassment claims have been filed in the last four years since Tony Evers has been governor. Now, is that fair? Well, I think you can make a strong argument that says, no, it's not necessarily fair, but apparently that's what's going on here. 855-616-1620. Let's talk to David in Milwaukee. David, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, David. Uh, You know, I don't think it's going to work. Uh, Mudslinging at an all-time low. Uh, You know, a guy who's provided family-supporting jobs for decades. What are and in a state where we're trying to attract and retain businesses? What message are you sending to the other business owners uh, in this state if you're willing to cross that line that should not have been crossed? Yeah, right. Exactly. Now, look. If this was, if this was a bad company, if this was a company where there were all these reports of misconduct and you had, you know, vast numbers of employees that were leaving because of hostile workplace stuff and things like that, maybe that that's not what this is. And if you know anybody that works for the Michaels Corporation, you know, they will tell you. It's a good place to work if you want to do this kind of stuff. And that that's who I'm actually hearing from. A lot of people who are just really honked off that, you know, their company is being trashed because, well, okay, the polls show, you know, Tony Evers and Tim Michaels in a really, really close race. So we're, we're trying to use this stuff. And I understand politics isn't beanbag, but you're right. What does this say about people who choose to build businesses, employ people, and then get involved in public life that you're going to be subject to these sleazy, cheap sort of attacks that you know, that really demean not only you, not only the company you've built, but the thousands of people that work at your company and are proud of doing that? Agreed. Yeah. No, no thanks, thanks for calling. I guess that, see, that's, that's the frustrating thing about this. If you want to attack Tim Michaels on his positions on various things and contrast them with the sort of do-nothing stuff that you've gotten from Tony Evers over the years, that, that, that's, that, that's fair. Evers says he wants to release half of the prisoners. He wants to reduce the prison population in half. The only way you can do that is by paroling people or not sending people to prison that, in my opinion, would otherwise go to prison. That is a fair issue. Let Tony Evers defend that policy. And then you can have that policy thing of, no, I think it's important. I think we should be paroling people. You can have that policy debate. But this this goes beyond that. Tom, Tom, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. I I think you just kind of took it a minute ago. I saw like the Common Sense Alliance is responsible for those ads and Tony Evers. But then wouldn't Common Sense tell you when he was superintendent, when he have students having sex with uh, teachers and teachers, all the kind of misconduct going on, wouldn't Evers then be responsible for that with that kind of logic? It just, uh, I think this is going to backfire big time. It just doesn't make sense to me. Well, no, Tom, th- thanks. For, if, I, if I were, if, if this is now an, an issue, if I were some of, 
you know, if I were some Republican operatives or if I were with the Michaels campaign, this is what the mission would have been. All right. We want you to look at all the sexual harassment lawsuits and all the discrimination lawsuits and or claims that have been filed during the last four years. And then we want to go back and we want to look at all the different similar claims that were filed when Tony Evers was the head of the Department of Public Instruction or when he was the administrator of the whatever school system he was. And we're going to look at that. And then we're going to look at these kind of numbers as well. Now, you could argue, hey, is it fair to hold Michael, uh, to hold Evers responsible for that? My argument would be, well, unless he was directly involved in this, probably not. But if you get a statistically insignificant sample, and again, I'm not minimizing any particular case, but that's not what this argument is. This argument is that Tim Michaels is a bad person. Tim Michaels is unqualified to be governor because, look, you had these lawsuits that were filed against the company five in 22 years. And from the perspective of the sexual harassment lawsuits, none, none in the last 10 years. And again, we don't know how they were resolved. It, it's a, I'm not minimizing this, but can I see a show of hands? Anybody who's ever worked, like th- these are construction jobs and, and things like that. And, and we do know that, you know, construction sites and things like that, some of these settings can, as particularly 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, th- these, these can be tough. You know, they can be tough places to work. And that's why, candidly, given the nature of the business, I'm not surprised that there weren't more complaints that were made. And that tells me that the Michaels Corporation is, is probably has done a pretty good job of policing these sorts of situations. But it's statistically insignificant. I guess it's really frustrating. I wonder if you'll notice, the only I'm not saying this is exclusive, but the only place I've seen this story, which is now the basis for the attack ad, is on this one local TV station. I'm sure my guess would be, it is just my guess, that whoever shopped this story shopped it to other TV stations as well and news outlets. And some people probably put on the brakes with this and said, okay, let's let's try to figure out what wh- whether this is fair or not or what it really is in, in overall perspective. And then if we're going to run this type of story, don't we have an obligation to then investigate how many of these complaints have been filed against, you know, Evers over over time? And I just I, – I, I raise this – as well. Jeff, I think it's fair. I'm a Republican, but I think anything goes. If you choose the public life, they can pretty much say anything they want about you, even though it's not true. Um, I, it's a, it, it's just, it, it's just, a, it's a heavy pause for that, because this is why good people don't want to get involved in politics because you say, is it is it really worth this? I mean, you know, I mean, I just took, think about this situation. I, my family's built this business and we've taken a small business and we've built this into a major national, maybe international corporation. We employ over 8,000 people. We, we have business all over the country, maybe all over the world. These are good family-supporting jobs. People want to work for us. We have shared the wealth with our employees because we realize that that's the key to this. And I want to get involved in public service. But if I do, I, I have to be prepared because you know it, it's not just legitimate claims, but all this other stuff is going to be then brought up and, and it's going to be tried to be manipulated because— well, you know, this is just what comes with the territory, and anything goes. This is reprehensible. 
And the people involved with Tony Evers should be denouncing it. The people that are running this attack ad should pull this off the air. But but more importantly, I think there needs to be a backlash to this kind of stuff. Jeff, thanks for bringing up the lawsuit ads. Wanted to know how many in results. Thought all along it was blown way out of proportion, and it's running on all the Green Bay channels. Um, Yeah. That's exactly what this is. Uh, Jeff, why the attack ads? Well, okay, the attack ads, it's because they think they work. And, you know, the the bottom line of all this is these attack ads work. Uh, I think the Evers folks and their supporters, they're in a little bit of panic because they they figured that this race, they've just been bashing Tim Michaels relentlessly. And I think they figure that they've gotten as much mileage as they can out of the abortion issue, that that's not going to move the needle for any more people. And so now we've got to, oh, this guy, it's terrible. He has this awful culture. I only point out that that's not just an attack on Tim Michaels. It's an attack on a great Wisconsin company. And if you would ask if you would ask almost all of those 8,000 people that work for this company across the way, they'll tell you that this is a BS attack ad. And again, I think just like some other attack ads in the past, I think this one has the potential to backfire big time, just like the, oh, Tim Michaels is a terrible person because his foundation donated money to his church and donated money to um, mainstream anti-abortion groups like Wisconsin Right to Life or Pro-Life Wisconsin. I understand that, you know, anything goes, or at least some people think anything goes. Maybe this time the voters in Wisconsin will see through it. The leaves are changing colors, and you know what that means. It's time for the Jeff Wagner Home Improvement Showcase, presented by Great Midwest Bank. This week, we are featuring featuring Pablocki Paving, 100% employee-owned. You can request a quotation from them by calling their number, 414-476-9130. Let me try that again, 414-476-9130, or visit their website at pablockipaving.com. It's Wagner's Home Improvement Showcase on Wisconsin's radio station, 620 WTMJ. All right. Political correctness run amok. Now, I I understand that we need to be more inclusive. I, I get that that's this big thing that's there. And I understand that, you know, when in the concept of, of being inclusive, we don't want to do things that are going to make some people feel excluded. But at the same time, Aren't there limits on that? I love this story. Apparently, the United States Air Force Academy, which is in uh, Boulder Springs, Colorado, they they now, the Air Force, this is the U.S. Air Force, has now, as part of its training, decided to, okay, do an inclusivity training um, and a diversity training. So, all right, that's good. You know, obviously, you know, we, we've got a military that's comprised from people from all walks of life and different genders and different races. So we want people to be respectful for each other. Okay. There is a slide presentation, diversity and inclusion, what it is, why we care and what we can do in this proposal. It apparently in this instruction, it advises cadets to use person-centered and gender-neutral language when describing individuals. All right. I'm not making this up. This is what they tell the cadets. Some families are headed by single parents 
grandparents, foster parents, two moms, two dads, etc. So do not use the term mom or dad. Instead, consider saying parent or caregiver, because if you say, I just got a package from my mom and dad, somebody who, I don't know, was raised by foster parents or grandparents or by single parents, they might feel excluded. If you say, I just got a package from mom and dad, so they are saying, don't use the phrases mom and dad. Give me strength. I guess my my, my point is the idea that if, if I was raised, if I've my, my parents are both passed away. But, you know, if, if I wanted to say, hey, I just got a call, I just talked to mom and dad, and somebody else, I don't know, was raised by a mom or a dad or whatever, or grandparents, the, 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 it's my problem because I was raised from mom and dad, and somebody's feelings are so sensitive that the fact that I just got off the phone with mom and dad will cause them to be offended or feel excluded, at which point in time you have to say, how, how, how crazy has the world gotten? Okay, the, it, gets, it gets better. They are telling cadets that they should use language which includes all genders, like folks or y'all, instead of um, the word guys. So, hey, guys, you know, which a lot of times, you know, I don't know, I'm sure I am guilty of this, you know, if there's like four or five people that are out there um, and you just want to collectively say, hey, it's time to move on. Hey, guys, you want to go get a beer? All right, and they're they're saying, well, don't don't do that. You've got to include folks. So I, I can't just say guys if there's like three couples because somebody who's not a guy might be offended by that. It gets better. It gets better. You're not supposed to say boyfriend or girlfriend. Instead, you're supposed to say partner. So in other words, if I say, hey, I just got a letter from my girlfriend or Friday night, I, I've got a pass, and I'm going to go uh, take my girlfriend to a movie. You're not supposed to say that because somebody who doesn't have a girlfriend or somebody who, I don't know, identifies as a different gender or something like that might be offended. So you're supposed to say partner. I'm taking my partner to the movie. This this is where political correctness has, has brought us. Look, and, and I— I understand that there's some people who don't have girlfriends or don't have boyfriends or whatever, but does that mean that you then have to ban the term? And my argument would be if there's somebody out there that is offended or has their psyche destroyed because one of their colleagues says, hey, I just got off the phone with my boyfriend, if if that if that phrase is such that it is going to, again, cause them to retreat to their shell, well, the bottom line is, I, I think, you know, there's, I think that you've got bigger problems. Um, one of the, uh, Representative Mike Walsh, who's a Republican from Florida, Green Beret, Afghan war veteran, says, it's been a tradition in the military to get letters from mom and dad or your boyfriend or girlfriend as long as there's been a military. Now we're instructing every cadet entering the Air Force to not say mom and dad, to not say boyfriend or girlfriend. I think the Air Force should be worried against macro aggressions against America that are happening all over the world. But yet we're trying to create this environment where you you can't take normal phraseology because somebody, some Somewhere, somehow, might claim to be offended. And then, again, turn this into, well, we don't want this to be a microaggression. We want everybody to feel comfortable. 
I understand, again, the need for inclusivity. I understand the need for diversity. But at some point in time, we've just gone around the blanking bend. And this is a classic example of that. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have you with us. All right. I yearn. Actually, a number of people are just our last comment, our Twitter, our text line just exploding about the conversation about or the Air Force Academy is now instructing cadets not to use the phrase like mom and dad because there might be some people who didn't have a mom or a dad and they might somehow be offended by this. And you also shouldn't use phrases like boyfriend or girlfriend or you shouldn't use phrases like guys as in, hey, guys, let, let's all go and, and get a beer or let's go down to the malt shop or whatever because that there might be gals that are included in in that, um, and somebody somewhere somehow might be offended, and a number of people are pointing out, well, remember on Survivor, Jeff, and I, I, I'm, I'm proud to say that I haven't watched Survivor in probably like the last 20-some seasons or so after it jumped the shark, but they say, remember, Jeff Probst, he used to say, hey guys, come on in, it's the Tribal Council, and apparently last year he not only stopped doing that, but he apologized because somebody somewhere might be offended. And you'd always wonder, who is that person really? And and wouldn't they like to stand up and explain why it is collectively that they are offended by this? But anyhow, I digress. All right. If you are a regular listener of this program, you know that I am very agnostic when it comes to Donald Trump. I I think the absolute hatred that was displayed by him, against him by people on the left during the course of his presidency was was appalling. And I think that the idea that people can't accept the fact that there were a lot of Trump policies which were very, very good during those four years, I think that that is unfortunate because that, that's actually the truth, which isn't to say that Donald Trump was the kind of guy that you'd you know want to hang out with or you'd want to do business with or you'd be around because I think there's lots of aspects of Trump as a person that are just, what's the word I'm looking for? Repulsive. That would be the word I'm looking for, repulsive. And I similarly believe that Trump's behavior after his loss in the election, and he did lose the election, um, after his loss in November of 2020, I I think his behavior rendered any question about whether he was fit to ever again occupy public uh, knowledge, public office. It just resolved all that. His refusal to accept the election results, his filing of frivolous lawsuits, um, I, I think it did a lot of damage to the country, and it did a lot of damage to him. And then a lot of the rhetoric and a lot of the remarks and whether or not he's criminally liable for what happened on January 6th, there's no question, in my opinion, he, he contributed to that climate by what he did. And again, it, it's why it has rendered him, at least in my mind, unfit to hold public office again. And actually, for Trump supporters, the the, the real travesty or tragedy behind this, either way why the word would be appropriate, is that if he had been just even slightly gracious after after the November elections, if instead of the I, I didn't lose and this election conspiracy stuff and and the behavior that cost the Republicans two Senate seats in that runoff in Georgia and then the thing on January 6th, if he had just been the slightest bit gracious about all this instead of behaving like he did, Trump would be lead. If Trump wanted to run in 24, given the absolute and total disaster that the Biden administration has been, and it's been a bad two years from a policy perspective. And I, I understand that there's people who have blinders on. 
but it, it's been bad. I mean, this is Jimmy Carter redo. And and if you're looking at the amount of wealth you've lost in the stock market by any objective measure, Carter, uh, Biden, Carter, Biden has been a complete and total disaster. And, but but yet. You know, if you compare him to, to Donald Trump and the excesses, that's that's what the Democrats have. You know, you want to get, run against against Trump, and that's that's one of the things that, that's out there. And that's why I personally believe that the sooner Donald Trump disappears from the public stage, the better that's going to be for the country. It's better that the better it's going to be for Republicans as well. And I understand that when I say that, some people who are still hardcore Trump supporters, you know, get upset with me. But I'm sorry, he's he's not electable anymore, and he becomes because he is so divisive, and a lot of that divis- divisiveness is because of his own making. He 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 becomes a distraction. Biden runs against Trump. Biden doesn't then have to defend his his atrocious handling of the economy or the border or any of these other sort of things, which brings me to something that happened yesterday. You had the attorney general of New York who filed a civil lawsuit. This is not criminal. It is a civil lawsuit against Trump and the Trump family and their businesses, alleging, um, essentially alleging fraud in connection with lots and lots of business dealings. And there was referral to the IRS. But this is not – this is a civil lawsuit. It's not criminal because the attorney general doesn't have the jurisdiction to bring criminal charges. The essence of the indictment is that when Trump was taking out various loans, for example, he overstated the value of of his assets. I mean, for example, he apparently in – at one point in time, when he was trying to get a loan, he claimed that his apartment at the Trump Tower was worth $327 million, which, it, it, objectively speaking, the lawsuit says it wasn't worth close to that. He said it had more square footage than it did, um, it, it, and, it, and it just didn't. It alleged that he – it alleged that – when on some of these properties, because you had the Trump name on the property, that inflated the value, that made it worth more. Um, you know, it was all those different sorts of, of things that essentially he was puffing or fraudulently, if you want to use that phrase, he was you know increasing the value when he applied for all this stuff, when he applied for loans and things. Now, the problem with this lawsuit, and one of the things that doesn't get mentioned a lot, is that normally— when you're alleging fraud and things like that, there has to be somebody who was defrauded. In other words, normally if you've got a situation where there's a bank fraud case and somebody makes lies to the bank in order to, to get a loan. So the bank thinks, hey, um, all right, I'm going to loan I'm going I'm going to loan you the money for your mortgage. All right, I'm going to loan you a couple hundred thousand dollars based on the information that you have provided. And then it turns out that the information you have provided is false. What typically happens What typically happens is that the the situation is that you default on the on the loan. We actually have an ES broadcast thing that's going to start in just a couple seconds. Let me take a quick break. We're going to do the EAS test. We have no control over when these things air. So it's going to take over the airwaves in just a few seconds. Let me take a quick break. Then we come back. I'll finish my thought, and then we're going to open up the phone lines to discuss this. 
Welcome back. So glad to have you with us. Yeah, I, I originally, my understanding was it was going to be an ES test. It's, a, it's an amber alert. And I'm, that means that they will probably be breaking in again at some point in time. But um, I, I've all, I'm completely in support of these amber alerts. And if it helps identify kids who've been abducted, um, it can interrupt the program anytime. In any event, as I was saying, this law, typically what happens in like a fraud lawsuit, Somebody has to be defrauded. You you make a false claim. You say, okay, I've got my assets are worth $500,000, and they're only worth $50,000. The bank loans you money, and then you default on the loan um, because – and so, so somebody's lost money. So the bank has actually – been defrauded. They, they lost out on their money. The interesting thing, at least as near as I can tell, about this lawsuit is nobody lost any money. The, the, it's, it's not like the banks are saying, hey, uh, Trump overvalued his assets, so we made him this loan, but we, we lost money on it, because I, I don't think that's the case. Now, I'm willing to be corrected, but I, I think in all cases, the banks and the people that made the loans got paid off on the loans. So they're not defrauded in that sense. Now, you maybe the argument's going to be, well, you know, if we had known that his, his assets, he had fewer assets than he claimed, maybe we would have charged him a higher interest rate or something like that. But that's a tough, that's a, that's a tough argument to make because, again, they, they did the deal and they got paid off on it. So it, it's not like he's, in this particular case, at least as far as I understand the lawsuit, it's not like there's a trail of creditors who relied on these statements that were made and then ended up you know, losing money. I don't think that's the case. And again, I'm willing to be corrected, but I think all these things got paid. Secondly, I don't know about you, but I have, I mean, I've, I've, taken, out, I've taken out loans to, you know, buy homes. I've taken out loans to buy cars. I've taken out um, home equity loans, for example, and I've had to fill out those forms. And in, in all cases— well, maybe not for the car loans, but for like the home equity loans. Anytime you're talking about a significant amount of money, that the the banks or the finance companies or whoever I, I've been doing business with ha- has always made a series of inquiries. They, they've they've had a you know they've come in and they've asked questions. Have, I mean, if okay, so the last time I. I bought a house. I, I remember, I mean, I fill out all the financial stuff. I send in my tax returns. I send in all the documentation, and I, I'm, I get a bunch of questions. Okay, you know, why Why did you write this check for $5,000 to so-and-so, or where did the money for this come from? And, and I've, there's always been a due diligence investigation to make sure that the information that I presented on these forms was, in fact, valid. Um, now, if for whatever reason the banks or the insurance companies or whatever that got this information didn't do a follow-up and didn't investigate and didn't ask questions about why have you valued this particular apartment building at this as opposed to that, I, I think, again, it's tough to prove fraud because you know the, the Trump response is going to be, hey, this is what, in good faith, we thought these these things were worth. And I thought the Trump name 
provided all this extra value. And so that's why I, I viewed it like this. And you had every opportunity to send out auditors or to do follow-up stuff. But, you know, and by the way, you ended up getting paid. So that's, again, to me, that's what the problem is with the fraud stuff. Now, is this... Is this a great business practice? And, you know, would you necessarily want to do business with somebody that's going to overinflate the value of their assets? But when it comes to real estate and apartment buildings and how much, I mean, I might tell you I can sell my house for three quarters of a million dollars. And, you know, the real market might be, no, sorry, you know, that, that house is only worth 350000 But... At some point in time, is it fraud or do I say, no, I really think I've got a three-quarter of a million dollar house and if you want to send out an adjuster or inspector and you want to do your own market analysis and you want to tell me that it's only worth 350000 so that's how you want to base the loan, okay, you, you can do that and then we'll negotiate. I guess my only point about this is I'm having a tough time seeing where this leads to like actionable fraud. And I I understand it doesn't make Trump look good. And I understand that this is sort of these business practices that my guess is a lot of high-flying developers use. And I'm not necessarily arguing that it's right, but that's different than fraud. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I know there's some people saying, oh, there's plenty of this stuff and the IRS is going to go after him and this could be criminal from the Department of Justice. I, I honestly, absent victims... I don't see it. What do you think? 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And, and moreover, I don't think, again, this moves the needle in, in any way, shape, or form. If you think Trump is the Antichrist, you still think Trump is the Antichrist. If you are a f- supporter of Donald Trump, I think you look at this and say, oh, this is just more of a, of a witch hunt. And I, I guess I, I look at all this, and it strikes me as this even with much fanfare, it strikes me kind of as, as a nothing burger. 855-616-1620, we discuss. 855-616-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, I don't know if if any of you have ever like taken out a, a second mortgage or a home equity loan or whatever, and you've wanted to use the value of your house. So you fill out the applica- application and you say, okay, this is, I, I want, I want $100,000. Okay. And I think I've got $250,000 in equity in my house because I, I, this is how much I owe. And this is how much I think it, it's worth, right? You fill that out, you put that information in. Now, any transaction like that, that I've ever been involved in, what happens is that the bank, then sends out an appraiser or the loan company, whoever you're going to borrow the money from, sends out an appraiser to assess the value of your property and comes to the conclusion of, yeah, he, he really does. We think he could sell th- this house for X amount of dollars, and we think that there's enough equity um, to justify us loaning the person the money. That That's how it, it typically works. And if I... I guess I look at this, and for all these different loans and stuff, they, they could have done that with they could have done that with Trump. And, and I guess if the banks didn't, I mean, is that really fraud? If, if Trump says no, I, I really thought that this is you know what it was worth. And if you if you're in a situation where you haven't lost money, where the loans haven't gone bad. Is this something that's going to be actionable? Now, I'm not arguing it's it's great business practices, and I have no doubt that what the Trump company did is what a lot of like these high-flying real estate developers do, which is they overinflate the value of their assets in order to get these deals. But as long as 
they're, they're ultimately making the payments. Is it going to be actionable? Let's start with Andrea. Andrea, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hey, I'm sorry if I cut in and out. I'm actually leaving my real estate office right now outside of Lake Geneva. Um, absolutely. This this has this story has made my eye twitch for days. I literally just I can't even find the words. Um, it is incredibly bad. I mean, they do do this in the high flying. Um, developer world. Right. That being said, I do comparable market analyses all the time for clients. Um, I've also been on the other side of the table. I am a homeowner twice over. I have refinanced. We have gone through what you actually just discussed, and yes, they do send appraisers out. My house that I purchased in Burlington in June 2016 with my husband was $195,000. Four beds, two and a half baths. I gagged the entire time I signed the papers because it was so out of our budget. Now, if I turned around and sold that house, given properties that have sold in the last three months, because, I mean, if you're doing a CMA, most of the time in a normal real estate market, we do 18 months to a year. The last few years have not been a normal market. They've been amazing. Um, And I've been going as short as six months to get a, a good idea because appraisers are really, really tightening up mm-hmm. the concept because of supply and demand and capitalism. I could now turn around and sell this house in the historic area of Burlington for probably about $400,000, $415,000. But what people need to understand is if we say, yeah, you could probably get that the market might in two weeks right. bear something a little different. Right. In your example of the 375 versus 350, we're seeing that right now. But I still confidently and professionally can put my name to paper and say, absolutely, Jeff, you know what? I'm going to do my darndest to get you that 375, but let's just keep an eye on the market. Let's be realistic. Right. And if you close at 350, I'd be thrilled. What he did was out and out lying. There's a difference between saying, oh, the building's worth 78 million, and saying, okay, I can get 100. Or, oh, the building's worth 78 million, and I can get 300 million. That's just... L- let me ask you this, insanity. though. Andrea, let me ask you this, and I, I don't think anybody would argue that he grossly over-inflated the value of the properties. But what does the lender have some yeah. responsibility as well? Because like I say, I, I can claim what I, I can claim my house is what whatever it is, but they're they're going before they give me that money, they're going to send out an appraiser or somebody who's going to look at it and ask me follow-up questions and they're not just going to take my word for it, are they? No okay, and generally speaking, no, they will not. and here's why. You're, are you an expert? If you, Jeff Wagner, if you did that, called up your bank today, are you an expert in real estate? Have you practiced real estate for a number of years? Are nope. you licensed? Nope. Are you a certified appraiser? Nope. No. They are going to, depending on the type of loan, and I cannot speak as much to commercial as I can residential, but like when my husband and I refinanced um, during COVID, they sent someone out to take pictures to make sure the property was really like not a rat hole. Um, and then they just looked at, I, I left a packet on the doorstep um, and said, mm-hmm. hey, FYI, I'm also a realtor. If you want this, here you go. Here's some recent sold. They look at the MLS. They look at the recent sold because 
those are properties that have closed. Those are properties that have been funded one way or another. And I would I would argue at this point, I mean, it sounds really silly. And I was, my 15-year-old asked me about this last night because he was born during the recession. I can't help but wonder how many of these loans were issued during the height of you know, those heady days of 2006 through right. even 08 before things started crashing right, down. before the bubble and burst. And money was so easy to get. Yeah. Yeah, Andrea, I mean, I, I no, gotta I, be honest, I, some of that... No, I, yeah. I appreciate your perspective. And I got I'm sorry, I'm, I'm late for the news. So I have to let you go. And I appreciate the perspective. And look, I, I'm not endorsing this as a business practice. And and maybe you can make a civil case out of this. All I am saying is that right or wrong, there's probably a lot of this stuff that goes on. And unless you can point to people who when you when you say did he make false statements? Yeah, but it's as a practical matter, unless First of all, he's going to say, hey, I thought this is what the value was. I, I thought putting the Trump name on this really did add $400 million to the value of this. And by the way, these people made me the loans, and, and I paid them all back. So everybody got what they were supposed to get. I'm, I'm just saying I'm not arguing that this is a good business practice, and I, for one, would probably never do business with Donald Trump on any sort of level. But at the same time, that's different than for everybody who says, oh, this is going to put him in jail and stuff. I, I wouldn't count on it. A lot of interesting texts on the whole Trump thing. And let me just give you another example. There's a couple of people are saying, well, wait, isn't, isn't, it, isn't it potentially tax fraud? You say a property when you're applying for a loan, you say the property is worth $10 million, but then for tax purposes, you only you know claim it for $2 million. All right, well, here's again, here, here's where it gets complex. Let's say the value of the property really is only $2 million. The, the, the IRS or the, the local taxing authority, they don't care what, you know, what, what the loan people think. I mean, if, if you're supposed to be taxes on a property that's worth $2 million, okay, and that's what they decide it's worth, and objectively it's worth $2 million, as long as you pay tax on that $2 million, the, the IRS, the, the, the taxpayers, the government, hasn't been defrauded. So then it's a whole separate question of, all right, as, as long as you're, you're paying taxes on what the true value of this is, you know, all right, then let's turn to it. When you were trying to get a loan, you claimed it was really worth five, you claimed it was worth $5 million, and the bank uh, took your word for it and, and loaned you the money. Okay, well, the, the bank, did the bank do its due diligence? Did the bank look for tax records? Did the bank try to verify this? Um, you know, where, where, does this be, where does this go from fraud to puffing? And again, if, if the bank loaned you the money and you pay back the loan, the bank isn't really out anything. And I'm just pointing that out because if there's no victim, quote unquote victim, okay, yeah, we, I said, I said my house was worth five hundred thousand um, when I was applying for the loan, but it's only assessed at three hundred and fifty thousand, and so that's what I paid taxes on. Is that is that fraud? I mean, the bank could have come in and looked at the public records and said, no, no, we're we're only going to treat it as three hundred fifty thousand, even though I say, hey, legitimately, I thought it was I thought it was worth five hundred thousand. If the government only wants me to pay taxes on three fifty, then I'm only paying taxes. On three fifty, and I guess that's that's where it gets complicated. And then if you try to say, okay, there was fraud involved, say, well, where, where's the fraud? I, I took out this loan, they lent me the money, and I've paid it all back, so they're not out anything. What does it matter how I valued this? I'm just, it's a very very complicated sort of thing. And for people who think that, 
oh, this is rife with fraud and this is going to be criminal and stuff, I wouldn't necessarily you know, hold my breath on that. Now, is this another cautionary tale about do you want to do business with Donald Trump? Well, that's a whole different story. And, you know, one of the reasons I think one of the reasons he's in some of the legal problems he's in is, first of all, he hires lawyers and, and doesn't take their advice. And secondly, he hires lawyers and then doesn't pay them. And then as a result, you know, people won't work for him because he stiffed them over the years and he ends up getting less and less good lawyers <laughs> to whose advice that he can ignore. So we'll see where this all goes. And, and again, it's, you know, you've got Donald Trump who's fighting all these different battles. And I, I saw him, at least I saw clips of him, I think it was on with, with Sean Hannity, and he physically does not look good to me this 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 whole stuff has to be wearing on you and and i mean here's a guy who does i acknowledge thrive on on the battles and things like that and just i mean that's been his whole modus operandi his entire life but what is he 76 77 78 he's he looked like he was starting to wear down and i can understand how when every day is dealing with okay there's been this lawsuit filed and then this there's this investigation and again no sympathy for Donald Trump because a lot of this is sort of self-induced but for people who think that this latest lawsuit is going to be the the nail in his coffin I, I just don't think that that's necessarily going to be the case but time will tell all right this is a very very interesting election season because of the way this has all played out historically, the party that is in power does not do well at mid-year, midterm elections. That, that is historically the case. Now, the Democrats have, I, I think, one thing going on, maybe two things going on. First of all, there, there's in the Senate, for example, there's more Republican seats up for grabs than, than Democrat seats. So Republicans are defending more than that. Secondly, you do have the, the ghost of Donald Trump that is out there. And even though Trump is not on the ballot, lots of Democrats are running against Trump. And the Republicans have, for whatever reason, decided to, I think in several states, nominate candidates who come more from the Trump side of the party than what I would describe as being mainstream conservatives. So a lot of the, these ads attack the candidates because of their association with Donald Trump. So you got that going on. But the, the big difference in a lot of races, and it's playing out in Wisconsin with the ads, but this is not a unique strategy, is that Republicans are running on issues like, well, you just heard that, crime and the economy, which are typically, you know, two big winner issues. I think as time goes on, you're going to also see the schools become an issue. And Democrats, well, the big issue that Democrats are running on this year is abortion. Um, I'm looking at a story in the, um, actually, the Madison Papers. It's a national story. So far, with, with the intense period of campaigning just starting, Democrats have already spent more than $124 million nationally in television advertising referencing abortion. Okay, it's more than twice as much money as their next top issue this year. It's more than 20 times that Democrats spent on abortion-related ads in the 2018 midterms. I mean, and it's very, very clear that Democrats, not just in Wisconsin but nationwide, are betting their congressional majorities and governorships on one issue, and that issue is abortion. Get this. uh, Since the Dobbs decision in June— 
roughly one in three television advertising dollars spent by Democrats and Democrat-related groups have focused on abortion. So like one out of, if you translate that, that's, if you think that you're seeing a lot of abortion ads, it's because you are. It's one out of three dollars, one out of every three ads that you see for either attacking Republicans or supporting Democrats will be related to abortion. So they're kind of betting the whole store that this abortion issue is going to swing the, the election. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. You really are, what, what's the cliche? Um, for this political season, you have Democrats that are putting, if not all of their eggs in one basket, they're putting most of their eggs in the abortion basket. Is that going to work? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. <laughs> 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you think you've been seeing, in the political context, a lot of anti-abortion ads, you're, you're right, because this is this is the dominant theme of, of Democrats. And it, the estimates are that one out of every three advertising dollars spent on behalf of Democratic candidates is tied into abortion. Now, we're seeing a lot of that because in Wisconsin— the Dobbs decision did impact abortion because right now it's all up in the air about whether this 1849 law is valid or not. See, in a lot of states, it's unchanged because state laws permitted abortions. The Dobbs decision did not, and this is, I think, one of the things that does get lost in, in translation, it didn't outlaw abortion. It simply said that it's up to the individual states to decide, which is why in surrounding states like Michigan and Illinois and Minnesota, abortion remains largely permitted, and I don't think it's been impacted at all by the decision. It has been in Wisconsin. All right, is this going to be a winning strategy? 855-616-1620. Let's start with Sam. Sam, you're first. Good afternoon. Hey, how you doing today, Jeff? Good. What do you think? Well, I would say if you're a young woman and you're struggling to put food on the table, you're single, maybe even a single mom, struggling with gas, struggling to buy your first electric car, struggling to maybe see the doctor for other things than abortion, maybe for your kid, all of it. If you're going to, you know, or putting gas in the car, if you're going to make this your issue, you deserve more of what you're getting. And that's what the Democrats are hoping for. So maybe for them, if it works. It's a great thing, but I think it's going to help the Republicans far more because I don't think every young girl is putting us ahead of everything else that they're struggling with right now. Okay, well, thank, well, see, that's the that's I guess see that's what the question is. I mean, I think it's you know historically, for example, and it, it all goes back to when Bill Clinton got elected president in 1992, and the the theme was he didn't want to talk about social issues. It was it's the economy stupid. You know, remember that was that was the saying. It's the economy stupid. You know, don't don't talk about anything else. That's what people care about. Now, in this particular year, um, Republicans. I think if you look at the ad spending, you're going to see it's crime and you're going to see it's the economy because, let's face it, the economy is an absolute and total mess. So whether you think it's fair to blame Joe Biden or things like that, that that doesn't change the fact that the economy is a complete and total mess. So it's those pocketbook issues that Democrats have decided to counter that they think that the the 
idea that some states might not allow abortion, that that's going to overwhelm the pocketbook issues. Now, that's clearly the basket they've decided to put their eggs in. I I think that there's limits on that. Now, in Wisconsin, where the election is going to be so very, very close, I, I think you, you raise the question of, okay, can you just, can you get an extra, you know, 100,000 voters who otherwise wouldn't vote, who are motivated to turn out because they want the rights to have unlimited abortion. And in that case, could that be enough to make a difference? So obviously, that's what the strategy is. I think there's limitations on that, but that that's just me. Andrew, Andrew, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I uh, I was just listening to what you were saying, and I agree with uh, with everything you just said, that um, people are going to be voting with their pocketbook, and uh, I think it's going to backfire if the Democrats don't uh, broaden their message beyond just abortion attacking. Um, while it remains to be seen what will happen in Wisconsin as far as that law from 1849 actually being enforced, um, they, I think the average voter is, is more concerned with their pocketbook. And Democrats can bring good policy to the table, but they're not marketing it at all right now. Yeah. And I think you're going to see I think you're going to see it backfire. Um, messages need to be clear and simple to get the voters attention. But there's only so much <clears throat> so many people that are going to really passionately vote. Uh, for their uh, abortion right. beliefs, and there there has to be something to the table beyond that. Yeah, I agree. And, no, um, I think you're right, Andrew. No, thanks. I think you're right. I think there are limitations to this. Now, obviously, I think this is. I, I think it's more about taking your your supporters already, and then trying to make sure that they are so worked up that that they go to the polls, and that and that's what that that's what the wedge issue is. Will that will that juice the turnout enough to overcome the economic headwinds and things like that. I, I don't know. But if you're if you're thinking you're seeing a lot of ads saying, oh, Tim Michaels, you know, is this and Tim Mike implying that Tim Michaels wants to lock up women who have abortions, which is completely false. But that's that that's a whole different story. Um, if, if you think you're seeing a lot of those ads, you, you are you are because this is the, the seminal issue of the day, and it's because the Supreme Court decided to do what it did. It, it, it is kind of interesting. I would have been if the Supreme Court had simply upheld the Mississippi law that allowed elective abortions within 14 weeks, you would not have had this controversy. By going all the way and overturning Roe versus Wade, they have made this a political issue. Just like I firmly believe, right, whether it would be good or bad for the country, if it were not for COVID, in um, when, when COVID hit, I, I think Donald Trump would have been elected in, in a walkover. But because people were upset with his response to, to COVID, um, I think you had that, that kind of backlash. So you, you've sometimes this is just what happens in politics. You get current events which just sweep things away. Because my guess is nine months ago, Nobody thought that abortion was going to be getting one out of every three advertising dollars spent by Democrats. But they obviously think they have a wedge issue and they think it's going to make a difference. And we'll, we'll know in early November whether it did. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. One of our 
I call them colleagues, but I think that the GKB term is teammates has been uh, is is leaving ne- next week. And in addition to Scott Morris, who but um, Brenda has been around for just just more years. She's just worked here for a long, long time. And her goodbye party is this afternoon. And I I'm going to miss it because I have a condo board meeting that, that they've rescheduled for me. So I just have to be there. And so I'm just sending her a note saying I just uh, hope she knows how much I appreciate everything she's done over the years. It's it really is a situation where, you know, we're, we're moving next week, you know, downtown. And there, there's a lot of there, there's some people that have just made the decision that they're going to kind of move on and retire or whatever, um, and it's going to be exciting, but at the same time, you, you hate to see some of these people that have been just work with you and side by side for years and years and years um, making the decision to move on. It's just time, time, time moves on, I guess, is the lesson. All right. I want to completely switch gears. We talked a lot about politics and things like that in the first two hours of the program, and while we, we discuss that a lot because... That's on the forefront and will be for the next six, seven weeks or so. There are other things that interest me, and I always want to make sure we we cover those as well. Interesting story in the Wall Street Journal that that caught my attention. Um, When it comes to women's basketball, you can make an argument that the WNBA has never been more popular. You know, now look, here's the reality that for everybody that loves, for example, women's basketball, there by by a factor of five or ten, there's people who follow the NBA. But that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of interest in women's basketball. And you've seen that be picked up on, you know, that you have the playoffs, pretty much all the playoff games are shown on ESPN. And in the in the areas where there are women's basketball teams and there's talk about and maybe we're going to bring one to, you know, Milwaukee, which would be great. You know, there's a lot of interest. Again, it, it doesn't rival the level of the NBA, but it, it's been definitely on on the upswing. There's no question about that. So let's accept my premise that you're getting more and more people that are following, for example, professional women's sports in general, and and the basketball in particular. Here's what I think is one of the, the real staggering things, that girls' basketball Yes, I use the phrase girls because the Wall Street Journal does, but that's, you know, on a high school level, you have boys and you have girls basketball. So for people who are offended by their reference to girls, I, I apologize, but that's how we refer to it. Two decades ago, girls basketball was the absolute queen of high school sports. Nearly half a million young women crowded into gyms nationwide. The schools carried packed rosters of varsity, JV, and freshman teams. Girls basketball was a really big thing. Get this, though. The last school year, basketball dropped to the fourth most popular girls sport by participation, according to data released this month by the National Federation of State High School Associations. Girls basketball has lost almost 20% of its players since uh, 2002. So in the last two decades, girls basketball has lost almost 20% of its players. Um, While the top girls sport, which is track and field, grew 10%, volleyball grew 15%, soccer grew 27%. Um, Although boys' and girls' high school participation overall declined 4% in the last couple years, um, girls' basketball dropped 
7%. So at a time where arguably on the professional level, you see more interest than ever in, in women's sports in general and women's basketball in particular, what you're seeing is that in, in the feeders, the the, the area where you, you'd get that, that next generation of players and stuff, they're seeing a, a relatively dramatic drop. And I think the thing that I find most interesting is the fact that girls are, are choosing not to play basketball. It's not that like girls are saying, okay, we're not going to participate in sports because you've seen, like I say, a growth in track and field. You've seen a growth in volleyball. You've seen a dramatic growth in soccer. And you've had a decline in basketball. I have a why question that I want to discuss. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Why do you believe this is? Why is participation in girls' basketball? And again, I'm, there, there might be some high school program somewhere that, that the numbers are going through the roof, but I'm talking about overall, nationwide, the numbers are what they are. Track and field for girls, increasing. Um, soccer going up dramatically. Uh, volleyball going up substantially. Girls' basketball declining. Why is there a lack of or a declining interest, maybe that's a better phrase, a declining interest in girls' basketball. Why do you think? 855-616-1620. I've got a couple theories, but for those of you who maybe played the, the, the sport or have daughters or granddaughters who you know were through high school recently or going into high school or whatever, what do you think is going on? 855-616-1620. We discuss. <laughs> which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. 20 years ago, girls basketball, and again, if people are offended by the phrase girls, I'm sorry, but that's how we refer to it. It's high school sports, girls basketball, boys basketball. Girls basketball, as they say, was queen. Um, At a time where participation in girls sports at the high school level is probably at an all-time, well, it's been going up and up. Uh, there's been a decline slightly over the last couple of years, but there's been a precipitous decline in the number of girls playing girls basketball. It's down about 20% over the last two decades. And in just the last couple of years, girls soccer participation is way up. Girls volleyball participation is way up. Track and field participation, which is where most girls play, that's way up. What's going on with girls basketball on the high school level? Let's start with Jeff downtown. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. So I have a daughter who plays high school volleyball, and I don't think it's necessarily necessarily an issue with the unpopularity of basketball. I think it's an issue of the popularity of all the other sports that girls have an opportunity to play. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's basically a pie chart. So if one sport grows, it's going to have to come from another sport. My daughter plays volleyball virtually every single day. That includes her club team, that includes her high school team, that includes her practices for both. And quite frankly, there's not enough time to do homework and be involved in all the other activities they want to be involved in and play two sports. So I just think the way of the world today is that you are basically focusing on one sport now. And frankly, it's to the, you know, detriment or, or the decrease in participation of girls basketball but otherwise well, i don't think it's really anything to do with the game itself jeff let me ask you this why why do you think your daughter prefers to play volleyball over basketball well i in my daughter's case i just think the participation and the energy and um the enjoyment for her i mean there's a there's a lot of fun that goes on even if you're mm-hmm. sitting on the bench 
and it's a really enjoyable sport uh, to watch and to participate in. And the games are pretty quick, and the matches go pretty quick. Right. I think the time commitment for basketball is pretty long, uh, and I think that's part of it. But I also just think there's just more opportunities for girls these days, and they're taking advantage of it, which I think is fantastic. Sure. No, thanks. thanks. Oh, right. No, this is this is isn't a. I, I don't disagree with the opportunities at all. I just think it's kind of an interesting thing that. Um, you know, girls basketball, like I say, was the dominant thing for years and years, and and now you're seeing a shift away from it. And I, I, I guess it, it sure. I mean, I understand you've got that opportunity, but there's there's something about is you know why do you choose track and field over basketball, or why do you choose volleyball over basketball? Eight five five six one six one six twenty. Jeff, my daughter is a junior and plays soccer. She loves it. She tried basketball in fourth grade, but hated it. The culture was so serious, competitive, and and I felt unsupportive to these young girls who were first learning a new sport. It was all quite a turnoff. So she switched to soccer and, and stayed with it. Jeff, a longer season with lots of traveling tournaments, burnout, costs of travel, gas, hotels, food going up, and parents shouting complaints at officials. In soccer and track, parents are farther away so t- kids don't get embarrassed by poor parent behavior. Hmm. Jeff, in basketball, only a select few actually get court time. See, I think I think that's a big factor that, that, that's out there as well, because, you know, you're, you're limited to, to five people, you know, on the court at any given time. And I understand, first of all, you know, track and field, which is the number one participation for girls sports, there's there's all sorts of different avenues that you, you can find. And, you know, okay, so maybe you're a sprinter or maybe you're a long-distance runner or maybe you're a high jumper or whatever. There's more different avenues that, that you have so you can accommodate more people. I think volleyball is a lot more user-friendly. Now, look, I, I get that volleyball can be incredibly competitive, um, but I, I think there, there's more opportunities to, to play, and you can sub in or sub out or whatever in a fashion that you don't see in basketball. So I think that's a factor as well. Jeff, in most schools, running and cross-country are no-cut sports. They are part resume builder, part team sports that everyone can participate in regardless of the skill level. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that there's an an aspect of it. Could it possibly, Jeff, have something to do with men coaching girls basketball more than other sports? Um, I don't I don't know. Jeff, it seems that there are more women coaches at other sports and there are more men's coaches on the basketball side of it. I don't know. I'm, I'm not I'm not sure it's a gender thing um, as well. Jeff, there's not boys volleyball anymore. Hmm, didn't know that. Um, Jeff, kids don't like sitting on the bench. And I think you know, there is, there's definitely an element of that as well. Jeff, um, easy, 20 to 30 years ago, girls' soccer, track and field, and volleyball did not get the exposure like they have over the last two decades. Success and exposure through the women's national soccer team, the Olympic and beach volleyball teams, and the domination of the USA track and field has changed the landscape. That's from Lou, and I think he's exactly right. One of our other texters says, hey, I think a big factor is club volleyball. It's played at the same time as basketball during the year, high school volleyball is played in the fall. Yeah, I think there is an element of that as well. My um, my 
granddaughter who is now a freshman in college. But you know, I think her first two years in high school, I mean, she she participated in, in the club volleyball thing. And I don't think she ever I don't even think she gave basketball a thought. Um, and she was she's she's tall. But I mean, she came up she came up playing volleyball as a kid and then kind of, you know, got into the club sports and things like that. I, I think, you know, th- this is a factor that's there. I, I think, again, it's accessibility. It's the options. I think it's more opportunities to perhaps play. I just find it to be really interesting that at a time when you can make the argument that like women's professional basketball, much more popular than ever, yet it, it's not attracting it's not attracting that many high. I don't want to say that many, but it's it's not attracting high school female basketball players like it did in the past. They're going to other opportunities, which makes you wonder what that's going to do for the future of the sport. What interesting text, Jeff. I coach high school girls basketball, and we've struggled with what you're talking about for years. We believe there are two major factors why the numbers are low. The high school season is long, November through March, and basketball is a very physically demanding sport. Volleyball and softball are not nearly as, quote-unquote, hard to play on the body. I, I think there's an element of that. Tom says, Jeff, as far as participation goes, hockey is the ultimate. Everyone on the team is usually or has been on the ice within the first three minutes of the game. Jeff, my daughter is 5'2 and was able to play volleyball um, at, at a young age. When she played basketball, it was so much harder because all the girls were so much bigger than her. That's what uh, Jen says. Jeff, grade school volleyball is getting so popular, all three of my grandchildren are playing on teams. Right? It seems like that's that's where the, the feeder is. Um, here's, here's a point as well that I think you know needs to be made, too. One of our texters says, Jeff, club sports are ruining everything. I don't think that, but it's what they say. Kids are immensely pressured to specialize, even to the point of not participating in high school sports and just doing club. That, I think, is a key thing, and it's one of the things that is really – Okay, it changed from when I was a kid. When I was a kid, there there were seasons. Okay, so in the spring and the early summer, you, you played baseball. And then in the fall, maybe you played some football. And then in the winter, you played basketball. That, that was it. But there were different seasons, and you were encouraged to play all these different sports. And, and most of us did. Now... I mean, my career as an athlete was very, very limited because of a number of reasons, mostly lack of physical talent. But nevertheless, you had exposure to those different things. Nowadays, the texter is absolutely right. One of the things that you have is you, you have, I think, this incredible urge and, and th- deal to specialize. Okay, you know, you're going to be a soccer player. Well, okay. We don't want you doing other stuff. We want you concentrating year-round on, on learning to play soccer. So, you know, don't don't try out for basketball. Here, you know, go to the do all this stuff because we want you to be the soccer player and we want you to specialize or volleyball or whatever. I do think that that specialization and requiring or pushing kids to pick a sport early as opposed to like in the in the past where you'd let people just kind of play everything and then you know we'll take athletes and we'll let it work out i think that's that's something that's different let's talk to dave dave you're on wtmj good afternoon hi good afternoon jeff yeah i've been uh, coaching uh high school uh girls basketball for 30 years and a lot of the things that were brought up are contributors you know but as a coach 
you know, again, there's more opportunities in other sports. There's specialization. But you're, you guys already mentioned, you know, only five kids play at a time. Mm-hmm. And when you're a parent and you're, and you're raising your kids, you want to see them play. Yeah. And both my, daughter, both my daughters played for me, and I, I learned something. My wife's sitting in the stands for all these years. She, she told me once, she goes, do you understand only five parents like you <laughs> right because everybody else is going hey, hey dave hey coach put my kid in yeah so you think it's just the, well, the limited you know, number of people that are on the court at any given time yeah and if you think about it um at every level the high school level the the players are better at the college level the players are better professionally they're better so it's not like the talent has gotten worse kids do specialize so they're coming in with a lot more skill and tools than they used to, but that's starting to happen in all sports. And again, all of a sudden, they specialize there in one sport. They miss out on, in my opinion, the high school opportunity of playing multiple sports. Right. And what well, not? And Dave, not just the high schools, not just the high school, but also at the middle school level. I mean, and I'm sure you see that there, there's kids that are pushed to choose a sport. I, I would imagine, you know, in the grade school level. Okay, concentrate on golf, or concentrate on tennis, or concentrate on basketball, or whatever. So they they really never get exposed to all that other stuff. Correct. That's correct. And then so they kind of miss out on. The, the high school experience, but then again, the kids that do specialize and they're playing club or AAU, they, they get a different experience that other kids don't get either. Yeah. So even though we think, you know, from 30 years ago when I played, it was like the high school experience because it wasn't AAU or other things. The kids really don't miss out on the high school experience Right. Because they're getting a different experience. Yeah, no, thanks. For, no, I think you're right. I mean, thanks for the call. Jeff, and this is to his point, I think specialization is definitely the problem. The main spark my whole life was wrestling. Every year in high school, I would sign up for the football team. I'd go to the first meeting because it was a sport I enjoyed, and I excelled at at the middle school level. Then the coach proceeded to tell me that I needed to decide if I wanted to be a football player or a wrestler. I simply said, wrestling is my main sport. I guess you don't want me to play for your team this year. That was done four years in a row right and and i guess that's always been going on now i think it's happening not just at the high school level because i mean the texter got to wrestle they got to play football at that lower level now i think even in like the grade school levels even at that, that level you're being pushed to choose a particular sport and if you don't choose that sport now maybe you're, maybe if you're an exceptional athlete and a gifted athlete, you can be that, that multiple sport team. But, but let's say you're somebody who, I don't know, doesn't want to take up volleyball, doesn't want to take up basketball till maybe a freshman in high school. And, you know, everybody else has been doing that. They've been concentrating on basketball or volleyball or whatever the sport is. And you decide, Hey, I, I think I'd like to kind of get involved. But when I'm a freshman in high school, and they say, no, sorry, you know, you're, you're so far behind. All the other kids who've been playing this for five or, or six years, you just don't even have a chance. I mean, it's just the reality of the world. <laughs> One of our texters listening to Mike's newscast says, Funny, Vice President Harris has been to Milwaukee three times, but not once to the border where she's in charge of the crisis. That is not true. That is not true. June of 2021, Vice President Harris went to the border, and I don't know for sure if she's been back. I can't find any news accounts suggesting she has, but I'm not saying she hasn't. But 
that is kind of interesting, and it does show it's a political season. The vice president comes to Milwaukee, but that 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 border thing, apparently, like Air Force Two that she flies on, it must not just must not know how to go to Texas or or Arizona or any of those border areas. All right, uh, serious topic, and this is. Earlier this year, say February and March, this was a conversation that, that dominated our, our airways and our discussions, and it's sort of taken a back seat because, well, that, that's what happens when things settle in. But I'm talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Let's, let's kind of review the bidding here. There was, in the buildup, there was this general sentiment that if Russia moved in and invaded Ukraine— this would be a three-day war, and the Russian military might, the, the army, would just storm through Ukraine. Uh, Russian, I think Putin believed that his military would be viewed as conquering heroes, and the populace would throw up their hands, and they'd be great, and they'd, they'd applaud and stuff. Well, it hasn't worked out that way. You know, what happened is the Russian military met resistance that it didn't think it was going to meet, and it, it ended in, in a slog where the Russian military got bogged down. Now, the other thing that happened that Putin did not anticipate was that the West was able to coalesce and, you know, the, the nations were able to come together. They were able to support and willing to support Ukraine against Russian um, intervention and really present a united front in a way that I think because, you know, Russia had all the gas leases and stuff like that, the concern with, oh, Germany's not going to support this because Germany will take a look, turn a blind eye to this aggression because they, they need the gas. And and actually, that that has not happened. By and large, you have the, the NATO countries that have supported this. And on top of that, you have countries that previously wanted to be neutral, like Finland. They've decided, Finland and Sweden, I believe, right? They've decided that they're going to become NATO members. So this, this strategy of here, the West will sit by and let me do it or be they're too divided. Putin completely missed the boat on that. And now, matter of fact, NATO, I think you can argue, is more united than it ever was. So you you had the, the terrible Russian atrocities that were committed, the attacks on the civilian population, the fact that the economy of this country has been destroyed, the fact that you have you know over a million people that have become homeless and have become refugees. The humanitarian crisis caused by Putin has been absolutely unbelievable. But the, the thought all along was sooner or later, Russia was going to be able to prevail. Well, as... The spring has turned to the summer, which is now turning to the fall and winter coming soon. That That is not the case. Ukraine has launched an offensive. Russia is in retreat. And it's very, very apparent, I think, to most that Russia is, well, losing the, the, the war at this point in time. And again, you've got that, that winter that's coming on. And, and you just, you know, what's going to happen during the winter? Well, Okay, Putin now is facing, I think, crises on many levels, including the fact that, you know, people in Russia who were told that this was going to be, again, just a walkover, are seeing that it's not. So two days ago, actually yesterday, he gives a speech and he announces that he's going to call for a partial mobilization of reservists, which means he's going to call up as many as 300,000 reservists which is, of course, an acknowledgment that the current forces that he has in Ukraine are inadequate 
to, to do what they want to do. And the current forces are probably exhausted as well. Plus, these reservists who are being called up aren't like battle-hardened troops that can go immediately to the front line. So it, it's not... It's not like, boom, we can, you know, again, just snap our fingers and put 300 people, 300,000 people back in into the fight. Moreover, as you start doing this, there's a lot of these Russians who don't want to be called up. That, that, that wasn't their plan. Yes, they're in the reserves, but their idea of going off and fighting in Ukraine during the winter is not what they plan to do. On top of this also, Putin is saying, well, I, I am going to consider, he's again renewing his threat from earlier in the war that he might use nuclear weapons. And he's saying, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have referendums on annexing part of of Ukraine, and we're going to declare this as nuclear as our territory, and we might be willing to use nuclear, tactical nuclear weapons if, if Ukraine tries to reclaim some of this territory. Meanwhile, I mean, the West in general continues to be united in supporting Ukraine in their opposition to Putin, even though he's threatening to escalate the war. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What should the United States do now? Ukraine, by all intents and purposes, for all intents and purposes, appears to be winning the, the war, if you mean winning the country's been devastated, but they're, they've stopped the Russian advances and are now pushing back the the Russians. Putin is threatening to put more manpower into the war and threatening again to use nuclear weapons. What should the West do in response to these latest threats? 855-616-1620. I think it's simple. I think it's a three-word answer. But what do you think? Do we say, oh, my gosh, this guy's really serious now. He's, he, he's crazy, but he's also a crazy person who's now facing all this political pressure. Um, he's got to produce a, a victory here, and he's got access to nuclear weapons. Do you give in? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Okay, I mean, okay, Vladimir Putin gives a a very saber-rattling speech yesterday saying he's calling up 3,000 conscripts. He would be activating reservists. He's planning to put them at some point in time into Ukraine. He's considering um, annexing various parts of Ukraine that they still hold and then, you know, being willing to defend this with tactical nuclear weapons. He says he's not bluffing. All right, and he, he's threatening the West. So what should our response be? Mark in Florida. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, like I was trying to explain to your producer, when he says he's not bluffing, he's bluffing. <laughs> okay, if he, if, he, if he had a legitimate plan to go forward, he wouldn't be saying that. We have to learn, like I was trying to explain to your producer, and I'm older, and I'm a Vietnam veteran. We have to learn from the lessons of history. He wants the old Soviet Union back. He's taking it one piece at a time, Crimea, Georgia, etc. He has eyes on Bulgaria. He has eyes on Poland. We look at the other side of the world, communist China. They are building non-existent islands in the South China Sea, which didn't exist there 10 years ago. They are fortifying them. They are putting military bases there. Um, I guess my point is, Jeff, is that 40 percent 
40%, according to the UN of All World Commerce, passes through the South China Sea between Japan, the Philippines, and China. This is something we have to look towards and confront now before we are confronting a much larger problem three or five or seven years from now. Thanks for listening. No, thank, I appreciate it. No, thanks for the call, Mark. I guess I'm, when, when you say confronted, I'm, I'm not sure exactly do, how we do that. Oh, my three words, stay the course. I, I think, and, and look, I, I said earlier in this program, I firmly believe it. I think the Biden administration, it's Jimmy Carter all over again. I think it's been a complete and total disaster, with the exception of the fact that I think the way Biden has handled the crisis in Ukraine has been absolutely perfect. He, he had... I. Putin wants to make this a war against the United States, and I think Biden, by taking a low profile on this, by not being the at least the, the face of the, the NATO coalition, by allowing this to go ahead as, again, group, and, and by helping keep you know all the NATO countries together, I think it has been exactly the right approach on this, and, and Putin is, is losing th- this war. And I guess one of the things, one of our texters makes this point. So, I mean, my my three words are stay the course. I, I think what we've been doing has been exactly right. You know, one of our texters makes the, the very, very good point here that, you know, Putin— Putin has been doing the saber rattling on a number of occasions, and you know it it hasn't it hasn't worked out. Here's one of our textures: keep doing what we've been doing, supply them with weapons and any other help we can, but stay out of it as far as the military. Well, I think that that's you know that's a that's a given. I mean, I think boots on the ground is just just a non-starter here. Jeff, I was amazed and happy, and this is a very key point, I was amazed and happy to see Russians protesting in the streets of Moscow. That is absolutely unprecedented. Yes, and, and you're starting to see cracks in this this state-run, this is what we're going to do, and this is why we're doing this. I think there's a lot more average citizens who have been looking at what's going on, and they thought this is going to be a three-week you know, thing at the worst, and now, you know, we Winter is coming on, and you're seeing the economic hardships at home because of the sanctions. But more importantly, now you hear there's going to be 300,000 conscripts and reservists that are drawn up. Well, okay, you don't you don't do that if you're winning. You know, if that's been the pitch, we're winning. This is great. This is great. And I know Putin's approach is well. It's only because of the evil Americans that were at this situation. Well, I think that that only goes so far. And when you have Hundreds of thousands of people who are now called up um, as reservists, and they're told, "Okay, you're you're going into Ukraine to fight." I think a lot of those people and a lot of their families are going, "What? You, what do you mean? I thought this was a war that every this was never going to be a war. We were going to take this over." I mean, I think there's some political issues as well, and and perhaps some political problems for Putin. Joseph in Madison, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. What do you think? What do we do here? I think as long as the world is completely aligned against Putin, as long as his own people are now starting to be against Putin, I think that the only thing the world can do is hire a country or a hitman and whack Putin. (laughs) 
Well, um, thanks for calling. Um, I, I don't, I, I, you know, who was it? Who was it that got in such trouble? We talked about this. I forget. It was was it Lindsey Graham or somebody who suggested essentially that the world would be a better place, and everybody was absolutely outraged. And I remember doing topics about that at the time that the comment was made, saying, "Okay, now just just tell me, are you really offended by what he said?" Or are you just offended the fact that he said it out loud? Because <laughs> I, I think that there's most of us who figure that, yes, the world would be a better place without Vladimir Putin. Now, I am not promoting the assassination of, of other world leaders or things like that. I, I think actually, though, the longer this goes on, the more it benefits, again, the West. And I look at the protests that are going on and things like that. And I, I candidly, I'm, I am optimistic. Do I think Putin will use nuclear, nuclear weapons? No, I don't think he's going to do that because I don't think he has the public support for that type of escalation. Now, if he does, then, then the question becomes, how does NATO respond and things like that? But I just, I don't see that as likely to happen. And I think the more pressure he faces, the more he's got to try to figure out some sort of face-saving way to resolve itself, just like Russia um, had to find some sort of face-saving way in Afghanistan when they retreated from Afghanistan not unlike the United States ended up doing at the start of the Biden administration. But, you know, Putin is saber-rattling that just the more he rattles those sabers, the more I think it indicates he's getting more and more desperate because he's losing. 